Welcome back to WWC, the Winning with Connections podcast. A very important and excellent guest today, Heidi Snell, who is the Chief People Officer at WWC Global, our firm. She's here to share some information that can probably benefit any business, large or small. And of course, our, our focus is on small defense firms. Welcome, Heidi. Thank you, Donna. I'm really excited to be here today and kind of tell the story of how we work with people at WBC and how that might apply to other small firms and really like Donna said to any company in general. But let me introduce myself first and kind of talk for a few minutes about how Donna and I met, how Lauren and I met and why I've stayed at WBC for 13 years. So my background is human resources. Um, I have a degree actually in international business, international relations and human resources and had found myself being always really curious about the inner workings of organizations uh, as they related to people or how people worked within an organization productively, how people were motivated or demotivated and why that was. I've always been a, a, a curious or maybe I should say nosy person about people. And so that career path really uh, appealed to me in that respect. Um, I started out my career working in nonprofits, law firms, and publicly traded uh, insurance companies and businesses. And so my background is mostly private sector prior uh, to meeting Lauren Weiner. But I found myself in a situation where I got married and three months later was asked, hey, what do you think about moving to Italy? I think most people that are asked that question say, yes, that sounds absolutely exciting. Let's go live under the Tuscan sun. Why not? In a lot of respects, that was my thought process. So I left my career, left the leadership development program, I was in and went with my husband to live under the Tuscan sun, make pasta and maybe take a couple years off. Heidi, you were leaving a very prestigious job with a broad span of, of responsibility. Absolutely. The job that I worked at prior to leaving for Italy was a human resources and the human capabilities area that was new to a lot of organizations, they were using the model of HR as a business advisor to the organization. And so I had the pleasure of working with 150 different countries, made up the umbrella of the organization that I worked with, and advising on people-related topics, whether it was compliance, employee relations, leadership development and coaching, on how do we address different poverty issues around the world. I worked for an NGO. And so in bringing people into that organization, it was how do we structure our all of our departments to address that, not only within the U.S., but within a much larger partnership matrix organization? And how do we bring concepts of organizational development and working with the leader of, leaders of that organization to make people work fluidly within the organization? I loved what I did. Again, we worked in 150 different countries. And so it was a really exciting way to get engaged in the development that was going on within the organization. And I absolutely cried all the way out to the parking lot in my entire 45-minute drive home on my last day uh, working there because I felt like it was such a great place for me and a great career opportunity. So moving to Italy under the Tuscan sun, Donna, like you said, was not as easy as I'm making it sound. And you ran into the same frustrations that we did, and that was trying to find meaningful work as a trailing military or Department of Defense spouse. Absolutely. Um, and, then you, and then you met Lauren and learned about WWC. And told her not to hire me, all in the same breath. <laughs> Tell that story. That's a great story. Absolutely. So I met Lauren Weiner in a coffee shop in Naples, Italy. And Donna, as you know, coffee is life in Italy. So that was an absolutely perfect place to have an interview. Lauren and I sat down through the grapevine like most people understand. And I think this is a great quick segue and a quick plug on 
how people get recruited and hired within organizations. It's who you know, it's how you network, and it's all about making sure you make good connections to learn about an organization and if you fit that organization and if they fit you. So Lauren got my resume through the grapevine, called me up. We sat down in this cafe and talked for about five minutes. Um, Mostly it was Lauren telling me about the excitement she had for WWC in the organization, which I think is key. Executives showing excitement and being able to attach to the mission and and teach you as a candidate even about that mission in in a very um, engaged and excited way makes a difference oftentimes between if a candidate feels like they can uh, affix to an organization, they can attach to that mission and goal and come and work for them. So I was sold on the mission and goals of WWC and Lauren and I were bouncing ideas back and forth from that first moment. And then she said, this is great. You're hired. She hadn't asked me a single true interview question yet. Uh, She didn't know my strengths and weaknesses. She didn't know my most, you know, my most difficult boss or story, any of those things that you'd expect in an interview. And I looked at her and I said, you shouldn't hire me this way. You don't know if I'm actually a good employee or not. I just agree with you so far on how great your organization is. And, you know, I know both Lauren and Donna's philosophy has always been get the right people on the bus and then we'll find the right opportunity within the organization for them. And that was really, you know, as a small business, how we started out as an organization. So, you know, unbeknownst to me, Lauren was doing exactly that. But we then had a really good conversation about, okay, if you want the right people on the bus, Lauren, let's engage a little bit farther and have those conversations. So I said, you can't hire me today. But I'd love to keep talking to you. And then, of course, Lauren, in the end, convinced me and, and, won, and won me over because 13 years later, I, you know, I have the opportunity of working with Lauren, Donna and WWC. And, and that was definitely a big win for WWC. And so you, you came to work with us and you started managing what had heretofore been an undertap labor pool. Mm -hmm. military spouses. And I'm sure that that had its particular idiosyncrasies in terms of how do we manage this labor pool? What are the particular considerations we need to give to staff that is coming out of this background? That must have been very different. So the NGO that you worked for before was World Vision, an enormous organization, and you probably experienced some peculiarities about the staff that would sort of self-select into that organization as well. Can you speak a little bit to the different considerations and how you weigh them that each different labor pool might require. Absolutely. And I think that's a really great question. I think at heart, it goes back to no matter what organization you're working in, it goes back to the culture of that organization. What does the organization emulate? What do they promote? What do they reward in that organization? What do they recognize in that organization? So I think when, a, in particular, when you're looking at undertapped labor markets or you're looking at who are the type of people that we want to attract as an organization, you really need to look at what your culture is, what your stated culture is, but then in actuality, what your real culture is as evaluated by the people that work there, the clients that see that every day. Because when you're looking at undertapped labor pools in particular, certain things are going to appeal to certain people. And I think something about WDBC and the undertapped labor pool that we use of military and Department of Defense and Department of State affiliated spouses that really resonated with me. And I, I'm not a military spouse. Uh, my, my spouse works as a government civilian. We made the choice to move to Italy, which isn't always true of our military spouse population. But what I recognized early on was we shared a similar experience. And I so I think what you realize in undertapped labor markets and pools is that that group of people shares a similar experience. So when you talk about what your culture is as an organization, you really need to evaluate are the experience that these groups are, shared experience that these groups are having, does that 
comport with your culture? Does that run in conflict with your culture? And I think at WDC, what drew what drew me and most military spouses to WDC was this putting good government into practice philosophy. This philosophy that we were all here in a shared experience at a shared time, seeming seemingly in somewhat of a fishbowl where there are fishbowl, excuse me, where there wasn't the opportunity for employment outside of the military base for a lot of us. And so there was a shared angst of the talents we brought to the table, the professional backgrounds that we all brought to the table, and the inability to really get a leg up on a continuous career when you were constantly moving around, you know, after two years, after three years. And so for that labor pool, meaningful employment, doing something meaningful to impact good government, especially when you started to see on some of the military bases, some inefficiencies, maybe some ways that, you know, as they as military spouses moved around from base to base, they really saw things that could be improved, but they didn't have leverage in improving them. So I think what really resonated with that labor pool was our culture of tenacity, putting good government into practice, becoming a credible member of the team that could produce something for the clients that other people couldn't. And I think that for military spouses, that ability to contribute on the level was really, really important and did really align with our culture. I think in general, like we talked about a minute ago, when you're looking at undertapped labor pools in particular and you're and you're thinking about, you know, when we say undertapped labor pools, places that you wouldn't typically look for employees in. I mean, when you think about a government consulting firm and you think specifically about the Department of Defense, you think about people that have come out of that GS system. You think some oftentimes about veterans that come out of that system. And those are absolutely great places to look for wonderful employees. But they're definitely not under tap. Other defense firms are doing that. Other defense firms are going out and looking for the group on Facebook that is military veterans with a very specific expertise. Whereas we were saying, let's look at a group of people that aligns with our values as an organization and that we might be able to train up into these positions or capitalize on some of their core competencies that are related to the work that we do. And so I think it's really important that we look at what those markets are. We look at what those undertapped labor pools are, but we make sure that we have an organization that can support that long-term and can help that group be really successful in their endeavors at WWC. So, you know, looking to the future, there are still many, many untapped labor pools out there that defense contractors should be looking at. I'll turn it to you for a second, Don. I know that you're one of the owners of our firm and we both think about this on a regular basis and collaborate about it together. But, you know, what do you see as some of those next markets, those next undertapped labor pools for firms like WWC and others? So it's interesting because when you're talking about untapped labor pools, there's a a number of reasons why they may be untapped. It may be that just the standards within the industry are that there's a certain vision of the kind of person you want to fill a position. And, And like you said, in our particular case, that default vision was this should be a former GS, this should be a veteran. Um, And it it just took a little bit of an introduction to a different kind of staffing for the customer to really understand what the value proposition was. You know, I'm thinking of different ways that uh, working with you, I think I have become alive to what for me would have been under tap labor pools. For example, uh, you know, we were, uh, myself as an attorney, I was a big fan of attorneys at the beginning of the firm. And I still think that your average attorney is going to be uh, a great analyst and terrific at analysis and critical thinking and communication skills and all of that. But what I learned is that, you know, that's only part of the formula. Um, you have some people that came out of extremely different professional backgrounds who have amazing communication skills that are completely different 
than the kind of communication skills that attorneys have. And this was this was a huge eye opener for me. Um, it's something that I that I enjoyed watching. So I would say, you know, we have a default right now in this country where most professional jobs require a college education, for example. Mm. I'm not sure they should. You know, I think, right? I I think a lot of uh, human resources offices use that as just kind of a baseline requirement. And I know, you know, and, and you live in Seattle, so you've seen this within the tech industry. That may not be quite as meaningful in all positions. Absolutely. I think you're absolutely right on that. And in fact, you know, a lot of studies show that the disparate impact of that is that you aren't getting the diversity in candidates that you're looking for. And like you said, the diversity in the way you think through solving different problems, the diversity in the way that that your employees bring fresh thoughts and ideas to your organization. And, you know, it does bring up an interesting point that when you go out to recruit for a position, whether we like it or not, we all have implicit biases where when we think IT professional, I bet you, you can think of someone standing in front of you. I mean, I live in Seattle, so I think of somebody that has Birkenstocks on, jeans or cutoff shirt, shorts, and maybe a beard because they probably work at Microsoft. And that was the standard costume at Microsoft for the first couple of years. They're a casual organization. You know, in the defense industry, um, you know, we talk about, you know, what a consultant is and isn't. And so, you know, just challenging those assumptions and really looking at what success looks like and like we were talking about before, you know, if somebody really aligns with our culture, they have the ability to do the job well. I want to make sure we're looking everywhere we can. I mean, something that you brought up a minute ago, Donna, that I think is really salient too, is we're a remote organization at our headquarters level. And so our support staff work really, truly all over the world. So Donna and I have talked a lot about, you know, in the defense industry, when we say disabled, you really think about veterans. And yes. that's, and we love employing our veterans. And I think that it's an absolutely incredible labor pool, but there's a lot of veterans with disabilities. And there are a lot of people out there with physical and cognitive disabilities too, that would really work well on our headquarters staff because they have that flexibility to work from home. They have that flexibility to work different hours, maybe than uh, a standard uh, eight to five commuting job uh, into DC. And so, you know, we're looking at ways that we can bring in and train the right population to come on board at WWC that might be in undertapped labor pools because we function a little bit differently as an organization. And I think a lot of the rest of the world is recognizing right now, you can do that really successfully. And just to, to add, this is right now we're in the era of COVID. Um, so just to give a timing context to, to what you're talking about. Absolutely. I think most organizations are realizing that. So I'm really excited about some of those barriers being removed in employment and us really being able to look at, you know, who really has these core capabilities and core alignment with our cultural values. And then when we need to, how do we how do we train people and invite them into our organization in a way where they can be successful? And the nice thing about this is, is that if you are passionate about a particular under tap labor pool, you can actually turn that into part of your company's persona. So for example, absolutely. Uh, yeah, it was something that's very exciting for me is that the Department of Defense, going back to the college degree issue, has uh, there was a recent executive order that said that college degrees should not be required for jobs in the Department of Defense just because. And mm-hmm. there should be a lot more effort to to include more of the country and and I think honestly to maybe get away from this notion that everybody has to take on this enormous debt just to get a job. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, 
Yeah, there is a there is another company that I learned about. Uh, there was a manufacturing company where the company owner became very passionate about the employee uh, the issue of employing people with cognitive disabilities and employed an entire staff for manufacturing of people that were still highly functional but had certain cognitive disabilities. And in making that his mission, that was what made his company a success. And so that that's mm-hmm. the part about the passion, I think, that yes. draws people in both as potentially as customers, but certainly as staff. Absolutely. And I think we've seen it time and time again where our customers actually become incredibly invested in WWC's mission of employing military spouses. And our customers will tell you about their friends, brothers, sisters, spouse, who is a, is a military member in Leavenworth, Kansas, that is looking for a job. And, you know, it creates this kind of great loop of consciousness on the issue. And, um, and for us, we get a lot of our best employees through all these references now from other people that are excited about our military spouse model. And in fact, you know, like you said about the executive order, we were really pivotal overseas in changing a policy in human resources that for military spouses back in the, in about 2006, seven timeframe, Um, weren't considered for jobs of a certain civilian GS level or above. Those positions went out, were posted worldwide, and and they were looking really for candidates stateside that already had that experience. In watching WWC, they said, gosh, they're doing something really right here. The kinds of military spouses that they're hiring have a level of talent that we didn't know existed out here in our population. And so we were kind of able to show through our model, the government, that we could be highly successful. And, you know, in in turn, they could be too. And so uh, they started advertising those positions locally so that the spouses that were already on ground uh, and dependents that were already on ground could apply for those jobs first before they put them out worldwide. And in fact, a lot of our good friends and counterparts that are also evangelists for WWC were hired by the government through watching WWC operate. So I think we're really proud of, of that. And like you said, affecting change through being a successful business that employs success successful people. And then we, we took that experience and we parlayed it went into starting a nonprofit that supported military spouses who wanted to continue their professional trajectory but were inhibited by the very frequent PCS moves. And while we were doing that in tandem to growing the firm, I saw a lot of your expertise and, and a lot of the wisdom that you brought to the organization in terms of really helping people find what it is that suits them, not mm-hmm. only in terms of you know what they're qualified for, but also what they're best at and also what environment they would work best in and, and how to sort of optimize that within an organization. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. I think, you know, the roots of where I came from uh, at World Vision and in fact, some of both the positive and negative employment experiences that that I've had and learned from in the past and World Vision was very positive. That wasn't a, one of them showed me that great people aren't always in the right job. And I think World Vision worked very hard at this and really had a focus on figuring out what drove people. Because especially in working for nonprofits, and Donna, you alluded to this earlier, people are really excited about the mission. So if you're excited about helping underprivileged kids around the world, you want to come work at World Vision maybe. 
But the opposite to that is you may not have the skills for the particular job that you're interested in. And, you know, passion is really important, but it only goes so far in an organization. You need to be successful. That organization needs to be successful. And, you know, what what I learned is that if you spend the time and investment in understanding what motivates people, what they want to learn um, and what they're good at, and you have those critical conversations with people. And I think that in itself is incredibly important. Um, and I'll talk about that in a minute. They can be successful in many different areas. Going back to that kind of core competency belief that we've used at world or that we've used at, uh, at WWC global if, uh, in a many different ways is really looking at that thread of what throughout their life and their career have they tended to gravitate to? Is it work that is analysis? Is it work where you're a deep subject matter expert in one thing? Is it, Jobs where you get the opportunity to talk to different people a lot and advise on something or teach something are these jobs where you spend most of your time forward facing, where you're looking outside of the organization, dealing with vendors, dealing with customers, dealing in a sales respect, or do you prefer to spend your time in a quieter space where you might be, again, analyzing something, working kind of more focused in a one-on-one type environment? So, you know, looking at those kind of things and, and what people are gravitating towards, you can help them find, figure out what makes them successful in an organization, what drives them, what what those core competencies are. And then you start talking about that and you start looking for those kind of opportunities within your organization and beyond to help that person kind of find their sweet spot of where they should be and really look outside the box too. I mean, we had someone that was a manager at a call center and she really, really, really was passionate about the human resources function. So over the course of a number of years, she would sit in on some meetings. She would be, you know, she was mentored into understanding that. She went back and got some additional education and ended up in the HR department. And it was a sweet spot for her. And I would have never thought of a call center manager having the, you know, having those competencies. But of course she did. She worked with a lot of people in a fast-paced environment, had to deconflict, had to talk on the phone really regularly. It made a lot of sense. So to kind of summarize in what I'm saying here, I think it's really important that you look beyond the job titles people have had in the past. You figure out what motivates them, what they're excited to do, and what some of the trends are in their past employment. Uh, I mentioned critical conversation. Something I learned about myself early on, things that you enjoy aren't always things that you're good at. And things you're good at aren't always things you enjoy. (laughs) Right? And so I think a lot of people get stuck in that loop of I'm doing this because I'm really good at it but I hate it. Or I'm so drawn to, I mean, I love art. I love going to an art museum. I love talking about art. I love sitting with my friends um, as they do art. I can't paint a stick figure to save my life. I shouldn't be an artist in that respect, but I really enjoy it. So, you know, it's it's sometimes hard to have those critical conversations with people that say, I know you really enjoy this. You're not great at it. It's not your top skill. Or if this is what you really enjoy, this is a different job function and a different silo and potentially with a different compensation scheme. Uh, You know, a lot of times we have, there there are very, very few failed employees. I mean, Mm -hmm. most employees are hired because they're really talented and maybe it ends up that the failure was in putting them in a particular position and then you put them in another position that suits all of the characteristics that you described and all of a sudden they shine and and all of the value that they have to bring to the table is realized. So I I love those situations and, you know, Mm -hmm. 
oftentimes people don't even know what they're great at. And it's, it's just like you said, well, my degree is in this, you know, but yeah, but you have a really great mind for math and you're able to. Mm-hmm. You know, you have an unusual ability to translate mathematical concepts into an intuitive and understandable conversations. I mean, I know that's not what your degree is in, but why don't we push you in that direction mm-hmm. and see what you can do? Absolutely. So I'd say to small firms and, you know, advice for when you're working with your people is create venues for to have those conversations, create ways to look internally first before you look externally for that next group of talent or that next person for a potential position and have those conversations, schedule them, whether that's in your performance review process, you factor that into the way that your culture is developed. Make sure that you're giving an opportunity for people to select in and select out without crushing people's souls and without crushing (laughs) your organizational objectives. I mean, I think those are two things that have to always line up or our organizational objectives and what this individual wants in alignment. And so, you know, as we talk about that on the philosophy people, I think WWC naturally does a great job of that because from the start, we were looking for people that might not have those traditional backgrounds that you would normally see in government contracting. But I would encourage people to do that no matter what industry you're in. It is much more cost effective to hire internally. It's much more motivating to have career opportunities and career paths for your employees. And, you know, and in the long term, you really garner a lot of respect and loyalty when you're factoring that in. You know, the other side of this that I said earlier, internally or externally, I think another great success is helping employees realize when they may have grown beyond what your organization has available. You know, you've done all of those things already. You've looked for opportunities for them. What they want just isn't what your organization does anymore. I think it is incredibly important to help them find the next great place. They're going to become advocates for you. They're going to become salespeople for you. They're going to become the referral pool for you for your next employees. If you can help them find a great new place to land and be a part of that, I think, you know, we all tend to look at employment sometime as a, a timed experience. You know, I worked at, for, at this company from 2004 to 2006. I like to look at it more holistically. If that's part of your story and that's part of everyone else's story, so why not keep that a part of the story? Why not make sure that that experience you learned from, you kept, you keep in contact with the individuals from that organization, you refer back to them, people that you think would be that, that great at that organization. It goes back to, you know, networking and really making sure that even if your career isn't linear, you know, it wasn't promotion after promotion and exactly the same department and division that you and subject matter expertise that you've always had. It's a part of your career and your story. And I think that that's an incredibly important piece of making sure that you and others land uh, in the right career opportunities moving forward. Totally, totally agree. And I also oftentimes that's largely a function of what the needs of the organization are, right? I mean, and, and that's a variable that is fully dependent on the, you know, the business landscape. I mean, in our industry, gosh, if there's a 10% cut in in the military budget, we're going to be feeling it. We're probably unlikely to need new vice presidents, for example. Mm -hmm. Or alternatively, there are going to be some small businesses that want to stay small because that's the design, right? Mm -hmm. The idea is not to blow them up into a billion-dollar business. And, And at that point, there is kind of a limited horizon for progression, but that doesn't mean that you can't spend time in those organizations learning new skills, becoming better at the great things you do, becoming better even at the things you don't do great, and then going on into your next role with the cooperation of your current employer so that you can kind of flex your professional muscles even more effectively in a different situation. 
Absolutely. And I mean, exactly like you said, contracts, you know, come and go, they start and end and that it's a part of the cyclical nature of the of the industry is a part of what we deal with every day. And I think, again, we talk about our culture being so important to who we are as an organization and figuring out ways from the first touch with the potential candidate all the way to when in an ideal world, they are referring new candidates to us years after they've left, that if you infuse culture, if you have critical pieces in each part of that employee life cycle that emulate, reward, recognize culture, I think, you know, that really comes full circle for an organization. We've seen people come back to us after being gone from WWC for many different years, for many different times over many different years and many different locations. In fact, I mean, we have employees that, for example, one of our great employees that works for us in Norfolk, Virginia, has worked for us in Sicily, has mm-hmm. worked for us in Rota, Spain, and now works for us in uh, in Virginia. And it's a story that we get to tell many different times in many different locations. And it's because, you know, that we don't consider it such a finite experience to come work for us. And I see that in defense contractors. And I think that that's a, that is something that we as an industry can improve upon is, you know, the person may be with us for only a contract, but we want to make sure that they are a promoter of the organization far past the life cycle of maybe that one year contract that we were affording them the opportunity to to work for us on. And also, I mean, I wonder, you know, depending on where you are in your career, sometimes there's there's a lot of joy and honor in doing a job and doing it well. And and some employees might not want to be promoted. I mean, we've had employees that have Absolutely. said, I, yeah, I don't want more responsibility. I'm happy here doing what I'm doing. And thank God for those employees because, you know, they're part of that kind of big tapestry that makes things go as well as it can. Yeah, absolutely. Having a an up or out philosophy, especially in an organization or excuse me, in an industry like ours, isn't doesn't always work. It's not always a good strategy. I mean, I'm very grateful for those people that do a great job and do it year after year in our industry. They, they make our company, our companies run. <laughs> and then, so, so let me ask you something about, you probably recall when you brought up this kind of um, exercise in colors, yellow, blue, red, green. This is one of those like Myers-Briggs tests to identify where people's strong suits are. And what was really interesting about that was that they weren't ranked. It wasn't that one was better than the other. It was that different strengths obviously contribute to the organization in a different way. And kind of the art of that is putting, you know, orchestrating them together in a way that everyone brings their best talents and is exercising them all the time, you know, in collaboration with with their colleagues. Do you have thoughts about what kind of personalities are best in which kinds of roles when, when we're looking at, you know, at complex organization? Absolutely. That's a, that's a great question. I think what I have learned from these uh, kind of exercises over time and the Berkman method is something that, um, you know, I've used in past organizations and found extremely useful and actually was a fact to use at NASA to put together scientific teams that are going to be under great st- stress, um, astronaut teams that are going to be under great stress together uh, in, uh, in situations where obviously stress is high and space is low. So long story short, I find these to be more descriptive than prescriptive. And I think that's what is always important to remember is that you can have an introvert, you can have somebody that is, you know, action oriented versus kind of reflective work in the same role as somebody that has the exact same personality. And it really comes down to how you leverage those personality traits, those natural tendencies. But most importantly, 
how you regulate what your needs are under stress. And so the more an individual spends time understanding in, in these, you know, through these exercises and through these descriptions of what, you know, maybe their tendencies are, their personality traits lens to, lend to really understanding what do I need to present successfully in this environment. For instance, I am someone that when I am a very social person, so when I'm under a great amount of stress, my need is to talk something through with another individual, come to a conclusion to be heard, and then be able to formulate my response based on that. Now, is that going to be highly effective when I'm the CEO, I'm under a stressful situation in an organization that I'm going around talking to all my employees about how stressful the situation is? No, absolutely not. So I know I need to have a trusted mentor or two, a trusted advisor or two that I can work with behind the scenes to ensure that I'm speaking with the right audiences on those topics and can present then to the organization in a way where those thoughts are codified, those thoughts are contemplated, and that my message is consistent. I know that about myself. And I know that that means sometimes I do need to step away from work and go talk to somebody I trust for a few minutes, get it all out on the table, and then be able to come back, uh, come back and have that conversation. So again, my need is contact with people when I'm really stressed out. So that could be produced in a positive way, or that could be produced in a negative way, right? And I talked about, you know, what that what would that look like if the CEO was running around, you know, spewing their problems and their stresses to to the rest of the organization? Not good. So again, some of these I find these very very useful learning experiences about yourself and other individuals. And to me, it is really understanding at your core what do you need in many, in many different areas to be successful, and then how do you mitigate your stress behavior so that you're most often operating in a really normal, productive way because you're getting those needs met. Because when you start to ping outside of that, stress behaviors are an amplification of your need. They're they're saying, I need people, I need help, I need a decision, <laughs> but in a really negative way, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and that happens in a lot of different things. You know, people, you talk about fight or flight, you know, that can be a really negative behavior, somebody that just can't handle conflict. And so they walk away from the conflict. Okay, you know, that's their stress behavior. They got to a point where they could no longer figure out a productive, normal way in that engagement. And so they just decided to, you know, just walk away and leave. But if they could learn, you know, yeah, exactly what that would look like in those situations, I think it can be really helpful. I've seen really successful, you know, CEOs, leaders of organizations, leaders in the military that are introverts. That's absolutely, you know, you use your best, the best of you in that um, to become the leader that you need to be. So I, you know, I try and tend to shy away from saying that these are very prescriptive and Mm -hmm. that, you know, they're more about teaching an individual how they present to others in the organization, what their needs are, and then how to really capitalize on those things in a way that they can be successful within the role that they're operating in. That, that's a great way to frame things. So the symmetrical other side of that is, so now we've we've told individual employees, you know, you know that this is where you feel comfortable and this is where you don't. And this is how you sort of set up your working style in order to accommodate that. And again, showcase and amplify your best and sort of shore up your slight weaknesses. How do we as managers look across the staff and make sure that we are hearing and seeing who is contributing a lot of value and who is performing Mm -hmm. uh, on an exceptional level if some people are self-promoters and some people are not? That is a great question. And it's something that actually I stay up about making sure within our organization, we've created a structure 
that feedback can flow in a way that not just the loudest voice gets heard. Because I'd say first and foremost, before you even look at how to do that, I think that there is a self-reflection to say, we tend to, whether we like to or not, be attracted to people that we're comfortable with that operate like us in a certain way. So, you know, all of a sudden, and, you know, we don't technically have a sales team at WWC, but I think most people kind of understand this stereotype. Most sales teams are real talkative. They're real extroverts. They get great joy out of debating with other people. And, and you know, I think that that's a fun and exciting environment for a lot of people to be in, really stressful for others. So I think the first thing to do is always look at your organization and say, Again, maybe what are some of my tendencies, my implicit biases that have created an organization that looks the way it does or created a team that looks the way it does and make sure that we're really understanding that before we start to address everyone's voices getting heard. Because if you if you realize you've put together a team of 10 talkers and one person that will will not self-promote no matter how hard you push, no matter how much you support that you might need to address that differently. So I'd say first look and know your your team and your organization and know know where that might already exist. But put together structural ways for um for different successes to be seen. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, through your performance review process, make sure that there is a feedback loop all the way up to, and again, we're, we were a smaller organization. We're obviously growing and, you know, in large organizations, this may not work the same way, but in speaking to other small businesses, make sure that feedback gets all the way up to your C-suite. Make sure that there's a structured way that across the board, your managers are reporting on what the individuals in the company are doing, because you want to make sure that you can look across the organization and see that there are equities in the way that we're treating people. Look at your rewards and recognition program. Make sure that there aren't ways that they're biased towards towards people self-promoting or self-selecting it, or, or they're not biased to you know whatever other measure that might look like. So look at those programs and make sure that there's ways for kind of 360 feedback, because that individual... Or the manager may not be as comfortable promoting, but if you look, if you allow to kind of open up and say, who else does this person work with? Are they, you know, are they empowered to, are they encouraged to recognize when a good thing happens? I think that's really important. You know, in, in the era of social media-esque platforms that are available internally within organizations, there's lots of quick and easy ways to recognize uh, employees. And at WWC, we have a couple different ways to do that where any employee at any time can recognize another employee. Um, I think those are important that the recognition doesn't come just from the top down. It comes from the bottom up. I'd say at the same time, recognition that employees receive that carries with it monetary value that carries with it promotion potential. Like we just talked about, there should be a vetting chain for that because what you want to make sure of as a leader is that there's consistency and equity in that. And like Donna said, just so the loudest voice doesn't get heard or this only one type of, you know, of behavior that we want to model um, is being recognized versus maybe others that are really important to our success as an organization. You want to make sure there's a there's an arbitrator of that, or there's an honest broker that can say, you know, on one team versus the other team, what does this look like? So there is, is there a consistency in your policies and practice in the ways and the number of ways that you allow people to, to provide this feedback to you as an organization? Are there casual ways that it can be done so that it does not have to come from the top down so that employees can recognize each other? And then it becomes a culture where it's normal to do that. 
And so it's not just one or two people called out a year for, you know, a very important award, but that there's different levels at which people can be recognized and rewarded so that it's a regular occurrence in the organization and becomes more normal instead of an outlier. That's really such a fantastic set of observations. I'm thinking back just in my personal life. My kid was on a sports team and got the Heart and Hustle Award. It's because he wasn't going to get the fastest runner award. <laughs> you know, nice. um, I, I think sort of being broad in the things that you recognize and being very, very open to the different things that bring value to an organization should be captured in, in a structure like that that you're talking about. And so for that reason, I absolutely love that recommendation to have peers nominate peers for their contributions. Yeah, I'd say the one last thing that you know I didn't say, but to me seems second nature. And I know I've seen I've seen it in the way that you recognize people too, is remember what your core values in your organization are, whether that, you know, for us, it has a lot to do with our culture really describes our core values as an organization and align your recognition to that. Again, take a, take a look at what your core values are, make sure they're inclusive of who you want in your organization of the kinds of things that you want to recognize and reward in your organization, but tie it back to that because empty praise can be more demotivating in the long run than motivating. So be really specific in the way that you, um, you recognize people, you know, the way that you interacted with that client in that really difficult situation and were able to bring the project to fruition really emulates our value of tenacity within this organization. I saw that in you, you know, in a way that I rarely see that in employees and I want to recognize that. So make sure you're aligning it and tying it into what's most important to your organization. If you don't know what those things are, I would recommend that you heavily and quickly go back and make sure as an organization that you can articulate what those are what your mission is, what your values are as an organization, what kinds of cultural behaviors and and technical competencies that you want to reward as an organization. Because you go into these endeavors without that, it tends to be a popularity contest. It tends to be like what Donna says, you know, what is your, who's the loudest voice in the room? It tends to not not created an alignment to uh, to who you are as an organization. So I know a lot of people think about those things when they create these kind of programs and these kind of structures, but you have to be really disciplined to make sure that they will continually tie to that or recognitions can be actually much more demotivating than motivating in the long run. That's a really good point. I mean, so we don't want to be doing participation trophies. We want to be looking for... <laughs> What is real value to this organization? And, and let's use, you know, let's put that down on paper and then let's look for those characteristics. And it's almost like it's the opposite of what we are doing when we are looking across our workforce for those that are really quiet, but quietly really adding value. And we need to ferret that out. And then at the same time, when we are talking across the managed landscape, we need to be very consistent and almost repetitive and fairly loud and clear in our message that this is what we value. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's like communications 101, right? I mean, what's my message? Let me back up my message with three points. Let me reiterate what my message <laughs> was again for you. I mean, I think we laugh, we laugh at those kind of things, but it's human nature. And that's of the way that people learn is through reinforcement. So I think you're absolutely right. We want it to be really, really easy for our employees to know what we value. 
Okay. Absolutely. And we want to put our money where it's most valuable as an organization. I mean, we're, you're, we're an organization, you're an organization, whomever, you know, is listening right now that has a finite budget. You know, money doesn't grow on trees. And we, we want these things to be a great way to recognize employees. We definitely want them to have a warm fuzzy out of this experience. But at the same time, we want it to add value to the organization. And so it has to be aligned to do that. And we want to put our money into programs that will, will align with and further what's made the company so successful already. So tell me about some of sort of the thorniest challenges that you face as the chief people officer and and the ones that are kind of hardest, hardest to navigate and what your advice is on navigating those. Absolutely. This is a big, a big one. And so, you know, obviously this is a sample of of some of those and all names will be protected to for the innocent um in, in, in this. so if i do use any names they are made up names but you know i would say right off the bat as kind of my summary of this section almost everybody comes to work every day wanting to do a good job and wanting to contribute so when you talk about subjects that become sticky within an organization, stuff that's tough to deal with when you think about, you know, human resources and you see the Dilbert, you know, comics and things like that. Most people want to be successful within an organization. So I think when you approach these situations, reminding yourself of that as a human capital professional, as a business owner, can be cathartic in the process and necessary, but also is the view that I want to take. I always want to be the person that approaches a situation that says, Whomever I'm working with doesn't want to be in this situation either. I don't want it to be a surprise to them. I want to communicate openly and I want the best for our organization first and then the individual right underneath that. And so in approaching these situations, I think in training managers how to approach situations that can be difficult, that's my philosophy in it because I want to be able to walk away and sleep at night and know that I did my best to help that person be successful, help that situation be successful and if it doesn't come, you know, come to fruition, I want them to help to help people successfully select the next place to go. So I actually don't think that's a philosophy of some human resources departments across uh, writ large. And so I'd say, you know, you want to look to hire HR people, 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 those that are managing within your organization that have that kind of philosophy, too, because I think that that can do a world of good in in the morale of your organization and in really minimizing the risk within your organization. So. You know, when I think back in my career to some of the more difficult situations, I I pause here for a second. It usually has to do with misaligned expectations. It usually has to do with hiring somebody that just doesn't have the qualifications in practice that we thought we were hiring. It usually has to do with some kind of communication misstep along the way. And again, it usually has to do with somebody that feels backed into a corner in a way where they can't be successful. So when we're talking about personnel issues in general, I think those are normally where you're sitting. Is it technical? Is it a technical competency? Is it a professional competency? Is it a misalignment of expectations or was it a miscommunication? And usually most things come down to one of those four four areas. So I try and first figure out What's the root cause of the situation? I'd say, you know, we're in a strange time with COVID, but I think COVID itself presents a really, really unique situation where it's pretty tough to follow, you know, your SHRM handbook, SHRM is the Society of Human Resource Management handbook on how you handle things because the pandemic is completely different. I think one of the biggest stresses that we're dealing with right now in any organ and in any organization that's dealing with is, you know, how do you handle a situation where you no longer can 
see employees face to face in the same way that you did before, where the personal stress in their lives because of what's going on with the pandemic, maybe having no childcare options, kids home from school, other family members that they're trying to care for during this time, fear of losing jobs or, you know, or family members losing jobs is really unique. So I'd say COVID in itself is one of these experiences where we really want to look at how do we support our workforce? I mean, some of the things that I think have been creative that we've done as not only our headquarters team, but our entire staff that work on government contracts and our headquarters team, for the most part, are working from home is more communication, conducting what we call virtual happy hours where people can get together, wear their yoga pants, their sweatsuits, and just meet some of their colleagues around the globe, have conversations on different topics that are on the lighter side, ask questions about the organization, and just connect. Because it can be you know, really lonely during this time doing your job within a silo when you're used to a certain drumbeat and a certain regularity in your work schedule. Making sure that we publicize all of the different things that are available to our employees during this time, whether it's our employee assistance program, our EAP, what benefits we have, when when they can be changed, when they can't be changed, exciting news within the company, kind of emulating, you know, like our recognition program again. Things like that can really help in some of these more difficult times to make people feel a part of the organization instead of kind of out there alone and afraid doing their job in the middle of a pandemic. So I'd say actually the pandemic itself has been a really unique opportunity to connect with our workforce, but also really difficult from an HR perspective and in, you know, helping people figure out what's safe, where they, you know, where they should be working, what our policies are, how to support individuals. But getting back to when you said uh, stickiest and ickiest kind of personnel situations, I have always found that the toughest situation is when someone, there's a misalignment with a corporate value. When people have a hard time performing a job at the level of expectations of the company or the client, you go through performance improvement with them. You have open discussions with them. You talk about what resources are available. And usually in those situations, the employee is either chooses to be actively engaged and or, or oftentimes they choose to self-select out because they recognize this isn't the right job for them. Both of those can be a great success. What I find the most def- difficult is when there's either an ethical dilemma or a values dilemma with an employee where there just isn't the ability to see eye to eye, no matter how hard you try. You know, maybe it's the way that they are treating their colleagues. I mean, for me, all the, the most difficult situations are ones where there's a lack of respect or someone has truly broken a policy because they've chosen to, you know, they've lied about yes. something, they've stole from the company, they've... Um, those those you know. are easy for me. The, the ones that work <laughs> for me are when they're trying to do a good job and maybe they're in the wrong position, you know, or maybe like you said, there was a misunderstanding about what the rule really is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let me separate that out a little bit. Hardest from the fact of, I think the situations that I'm talking about create a larger organizational risk. So from a human resources perspective, there's so much more engagement when there is a total misalignment of values because you're not operating off the same agenda. So, you know, you're thinking about as an organization, what are the risks that I need to mitigate here? You're, you know, you're training your supervisors at every next step of the situation. And, you know, and it may come down to separating ways with that person, but it tends to be more contentious because you aren't on the same page. You don't have the same agenda. And even though some of those decisions... 
Right. You can't even agree on the packs. I mean, sometimes the decision is a lot easier. I mean, man, it was really easy for me one day years ago to be a part of making a decision when we saw that security video reel of something an employee did in the parking lot to someone else's vehicle. That's an easy decision. But (laughs) from a risk perspective, there were so many things that you had to line up because you had to think, how is this person going to respond? We're not operating off of the same agenda. So I have to assume that there's a lot of unknowns in this situation, right? That, you know, the person could get very angry, that, you know, there might be some legal ramifications here, this, that, or the other, right? So that's what I think. That's, that's, I mean, a very good point. And I think I can say without disclosing anything confidential, in the incident that you're talking about, I mean, we were concerned that there might have been a a substance abuse issue uh, behind it. And, you know, we were concerned about making sure that we would support our employee through that if that was the issue. Absolutely. Uh, and it actually wasn't that situation, but absolutely, we've had a few, of, uh, you know, a few of those yeah. over the course of 15 years in business. You're going to have these these issues, you know, no matter how hard you try to recruit, no matter you know the best screening questions, the best reference checks, you know, yeah. there you can expect that this, you know, this will happen at some point in time. So that's what I mean in that respect. What Donna is saying, I agree with, and I think that's where you go back to that open and transparent conversation. I think. You know, I I laugh about it years later, but years ago, not at WWC, I had an employee as a part of a a termination conversation, hug me and say, thank you. I knew this wasn't the right job for me. I'm so glad it's over and we can move on productively. That's just not going to happen normally. I remember it because it's so abnormal, right? But that's that's the ideal is that you've walked through a process with that person to, to help identify what would need to change for this to be successful. And sometimes it happens. And I, I mean, I'd say... The longer you work at it and the more you work with your employees effectively, the more often that's going to happen and pat yourselves on the back when it does happen. But it isn't always going to happen. And it's hard and it can feel demoralizing in the moment. But I will tell you this, your other employees in the long term will thank you because they're being held to standards for their jobs. Your manager's time is being taken away from all the other productive. It's the 80-20 rule, you know, um, all the other productive employees because they're dealing with a performance issue with this one employee. And really, you want to spend most of your time focused on productive things, moving the organization forward. So, you know, Donna, I want you to chime in here too, but I think something that you, Lauren, and I have learned is go through the processes, go through them with a little bit of grace, go through them, you know, really openly with the employee, but go through the process and make hard choices because you need to do that for your organization to be successful. And you do need to cut ties for your organization to be successful in the long term. That, that's absolutely true. And, and what we've learned is that, you know, goodwill and hope are not strategies. Strategies are <laughs> yes. you know, structured conversations and plans and different experiments to how to sort of change the situation and, you know, a rethinking of what the disconnect may be and how we may be able to remedy it or how we may be able to support our employee with something that may be entirely outside of work you know, until they can remedy that in their their own life and then maybe come back and and re-engage. But you can't put this stuff off. I mean, everybody's looking, the rest of your workforce is looking. And I think some of the most demoralizing things that you can do to your workforce is abide by really performance that is not meeting the high standards that we set for everyone because then everybody else looks around and goes, well, why am I bothering? Yeah. Um, Absolutely. That is a huge driver, I think, of very uh, humanely 
dealing with these situations as they arise very quickly. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the sooner that you start to have these conversations, you normalize these conversations, you provide resources and tools when necessary, the less risk you'll have as an organization, but the more, again, that it normalizes performance. It should be normal within an organization to say, hey, you did this really well. Here's one way you could even do better in the future or, you know, just tweak this one area of the project differently. And I think you'll have greater success. We try and instill that in our management team, that it is good to give feedback all the time. Uh regardless of if you feel like you need to or not, it shouldn't just be when something goes wrong or it shouldn't just be when something goes really right. As a manager, this is constant. This is part of your job. And I think, you know, I've noticed in some of our employees before, some of our managers before, a reticence to have certain conversations because they they think they're going to be hard conversations. And then they're not because when their employees get used to having them more regularly and they're used to the fact that their managers invested in their success, it isn't so hard anymore. I mean, a quick example, years ago in my very, very early career, I was not a manager, but there was a discussion of, you know, I mean, this is, I think I was barely out of my teenage years, you know, an employee that had body odor. And oh my gosh, it was really embarrassing. How are we going to have this conversation? And the manager said, well, I'll just tell the individual. (laughs) We we all were like, oh gosh. And, you know, come to find out the individual said, oh my gosh, I switched deodorants last week. It's not working. You're right. Oh, that's so embarrassing. Okay, thanks. And moved on. And no one in the, I mean, it was, again, we were young, but it's one of those things where no one in the department wanted to say anything because, oh, you know, this could be the most embarrassing, soul crushing thing this person could ever experience. It wasn't at all because they had that relationship with their manager where they had a positive relationship. There were more goods that outweighed the bads and it, and it made it really easy. Now, I know that's a trite example, but it's kind of personal. And, you know, and it's something that, again, these conversations don't have to be difficult. And I know they're across the spectrum, but the more you have them, the, the better a manager gets at them. And the more fluid the conversations happen and the more that the person starts to crave that kind of feedback so that they can, you know, so that the, that employment is really based on performance. And I think that's something that's really valuable to us as our company is that we absolutely value tenure. We absolutely value that dedication and that contribution, but it comes with performance. You, Mm -hmm. you know, you become more tenured in our organization because your performance is consistently superior. And I think that we see that as a corporate value. And I would just encourage all managers to see that as a value in giving feedback. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's true. And I, and I think what you're really talking about, I mean, one of your favorite phrases is to set someone up for success. And I think when that is the starting point for all of your employment and people management initiatives, that comes out and you start building that trust with your staff that you're really there to make them succeed. You're not there to gotcha them and you're not there to trip them up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the more that that is evidenced by all the little things, I think the more that, you know, for lack of a better word, constructive criticism, and sometimes it's not even criticism, sometimes it's, hey, you know what, this isn't your strong suit, but you're amazing at this, go focus on that, let's put you in a job where you don't have to do this other thing that's painful for you, you know, and and when employees believe that you are there to promote their success, all of that becomes so much more productive, that is, I think, part of, you know, the broader contract between staff and managers that, you know, you need to be looking out for your employees. You need to be reminding yourself that there's a lot more that, than what you're seeing. You know, you need to constantly ask yourself, like, what are they great at? How can we amplify that? How, you know, with this training, you know, 
bring them to that next level. You need to be thinking about their future six months down the road. And, and you need to be credible, right? You need to stand by your promises. Mm-hmm. Um, you need to be someone that they believe. So, you know, if they see you misrepresenting things to customers or if they see you misrepresenting things to accountants or anything else, you know, they're going to start wondering what it means when you make a promise to them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And one last thing on this that somebody told me a long time ago, and I think is just really important to remember is that how people are brought up in the workforce and how people come to the workforce in their own personal upbringing says a lot about how comfortable they are with feedback and how comfortable they are with criticism. And so, you know, a lot of things that we say seem really like second nature. And I, you know, I always think, gosh, seven habits of highly effective people seem pretty self-explanatory. But if I actually did all of those consistently, man, I'd be a really highly effective person. And so, you know, just to remind ourselves as managers and as human resources personnel to to tell our managers, to teach them, it may feel uncomfortable. You may get a very different response than what you expected because you may be in a very different place than the individual is on how comfortable they are with receiving feedback. Let's train that into our employees to get comfortable with feedback. Let's say to them in every performance conversation, and in fact, one of our prior OCONUS supervisors and former attorney that came to work for WBC as a manager did this really well, Tracy Pruitt. She'd always sit down with an employee and say, we're going to have your performance conversation today. I'm going to say a lot of great things. I'm also going to give you a lot of constructive ideas for the future. That does not mean you're doing a bad job. I'm doing my job by helping think through with you what's next for you, how we can improve upon what you're already doing well. That's my job. So please know, as we always have these conversations, you're going to hear both sides of that coin from me. And that's a good thing. That means I'm invested in your future and you should be too. And just setting that expectation and standard is so important because you don't know that somebody hasn't come out of an organization where they got 10 out of 10s on every performance review because that's just what you did in that organization. Uh Uh You know, or where every time they went into a performance conversation or review, they were afraid. Because in their organization, the norm was that people would get fired in their performance conversations or, you know, this is the time to ask for the big salary increase because it's the only time of year and that in your prior organization where that was even a possibility. So this is where you justify and fight for it. So, I mean, I think like we said a few times in this, it's the expectation setting process about what your organization's norm is and what your expectations are that set that tone for a lot of future conversations. So take the time to do it. Take again, like the Calm 101 example, take the time to tell them what you're going to tell them, tell it to them, and then summarize what you're going to tell them because it's really important to remain on that same page and continue a really consistent drumbeat so that your employees show up to work knowing what to expect on a regular basis so that when something is abnormal, they can identify that too. Yeah, I find that a lot of employee energy is taken up by wondering what are the secret rules I don't know about. Yes. And so, <laughs> and, I, and I, I fully understand that. I mean, you, you know, you know what you're told, but you, if you see some dissonance between what you're being told and what is actually happening, then you start to wonder, you know, what's the unpublished set of rules. And so I think it's important for us as managers to remember that, to always remember mm-hmm. what are the constitutional rules that we come down to. What do we value? What's the most important thing? How do we prioritize? And have we actually executed the promises that we make to our staff when we recruit them? Absolutely. 
There's so much more to talk about, and, and Heidi is an incredible teacher on these issues. I think she's going to be hosting some podcasts herself, and hopefully I'll have the opportunity to talk to her again, issues that we didn't get to hit this time. But thank you for joining us, and thank you, Heidi. Thank you so much, Donna. really enjoyed it. Thanks for the opportunity. Bye-bye. Bye.